Welcome back to the Agency X Podcast. Today on Agency X, we have a very special guest. And it's a very special guest because it's my friend, Dustin Alper. Hello. Hello, friend David Anselone. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess for everyone watching or listening who doesn't know and wouldn't know, Dustin, how long have we known each other for? Um, well, we knew of each other's existence since either 2006, 2007, maybe. And then when we, we, we met at a sleepaway camp and then we probably lost contact after you left, which was 2010. Yeah. And we would quite literally run into each other sporadically around Ridgewood or Garden State, right. but. Right, we lived close uh, together, but not that close that we were in the same town. But we did, we did run into each other like two or three times. Yeah, uh, that's why I said quite literally because there was that one time when you were filming in my town, yeah, and I was running in track, and I noticed you, and I'm like, and in both like, both times we've had this exchange, it was literally Dustin. <laughs> <laughs> you even sent me the recording too. I still have that. We we were live. But yeah. then we met up back again because I started working at the time at VaynerMedia, which is where you did, you don't technically work there, but you're a Vayner X company, there. right? Yes. Yeah. VaynerMedia is our sister company. We broke off. We used to be a team in VaynerMedia, the ad tech team. And then we broke off from them uh, roughly two years ago at this point. And you now work for officially Tracer. Yes. And you are a level two product designer on Tracer. Is that still correct? Yeah, still correct. I mean, we all wear a lot of different hats because we're a smaller team, but that's still a good description. Sure. So what does Tracer do? I mean, I know what it does, but for anyone else who doesn't know what it does. Yep. So Tracer, I would say, does three core things. Uh, the first is it is a data aggregation tool, mainly for tracking advertising um, stats, but you could arguably track anything you want with it. Like if you want to uh, pull in Spotify data uh, to compare that to how much you spent on your advertising to get a ROI calculation, like you could totally do that. Um, so the first thing we do is the data aggregation. So you're advertising on Facebook, Snapchat, Twitter. You want to see all of those uh, data points in one place. Tracer's the place to do it, as opposed to going to each one of those tools or platforms separately. The second thing that we do is we uh, have the ability to further customize the data that you pull in. So instead of reporting on your advertisements by campaign, you can report on them by uh, your brands or your products, uh, whatever you care about. If you uh, care about what region you you ran those ads in, 
uh, you can report on whatever you like. And then the third thing is uh, the visualization piece where you can visualize your data in different uh, line charts and tables, um, or you could just export it out of Tracer and throw it into a Google Sheets, a Tableau, Google Data Studio, and manipulate your data however you want. Because like a big, uh, a big uh, value of ours is we want you to take control of your data. Because right now you don't really have too much control. The platforms don't let you have that. So if you want to use Tracer for uh, a piece of your process and then you want to move it out to something to somewhere else, it's totally your call to do that. And I've had the chance to use, I, rem I remember when you first brought me into one of your illustrious, uh, I believe it was a, believe it was a pop-up toast meeting uh, <laughs> yes. where I, where I got to see the tool for the first time and got to play around with it. It's a very intuitive tool. Like I've, you know, a lot of these, you know, ad tech tools like Facebook business manager are just a pain to rummage around and get the information you want and you never feel like you're I, I like that description of of what tracer does which is uh taking taking back control of your data because i feel like i truly don't know what i'm doing with the information that's in a lot of these tools i feel essentially that you know i, I don't really understand how i'm manipulating it i'm hoping it's doing what i want it to do but I often find that it never does. And when I worked with Tracer a little bit, I was very impressed by how intuitive it was. And I think you are a big reason for that because you essentially designed the tool, like the the basic tool from its from its core till now, right? Like most of it is your own design. Uh, yeah, I've touched every piece of Tracer. Uh, when I started, we were a seven-person team. The six other people on that team were engineers. I was the first non-engineer. Um, so it, the, my first year at Tracer was, or my first year at VaynerMedia was taking what is now called Tracer and making it something that's usable. Because it was, it was always extremely functional and, and useful, but it wasn't usable. And usability. And I'd say in like every digital business, especially when dealing with experiences, you know, with Avex, we primarily specialize with the e-com related side of things. But for you, it's it's kind of cool. And it's kind of cool for a lot of product designers, especially who work on the tools internal teams, because essentially you're getting to know this tool so well because you're always updating it, enhancing it, you know, with all the different iterations and I'm sure over time, you know, you can spot how it's kind of interesting to see almost like how a child grows and all of a sudden, it, you know, you wake up and your kid uh, is all of a sudden taller. I, I don't yeah. speak. I don't speak from firsthand experience. Obviously, I don't have any kids, but, <laughs> you know, in the same way that when you're working with this tool and what it looks like now, you know, it's probably a natural transition for you, you know, because you see it every single day. But I'm sure someone who looked at it from when it first launched to now, or let's say two years down the line, it probably looks so different, or it probably behaves or feels so different. 
Uh, it, it, it's basically a totally different tool. The only thing that hasn't changed is the purpose. The green. <laughs> the green, yeah. Actually, the green changed three times. Um, fun fact. The green is our um, brand color for those who don't know. Um, and going back to what you were saying about just like watching a product grow, I think that is one of the biggest benefits of not working at an agency, no offense, um, where you really get to follow the product through. And it's a very different type of designing. You're, you're really focused on a lot of small wins. You just want to keep fine tuning and fine tuning. And eventually the small things add up to very big changes. Whereas uh, if you're a designer at an agency, it's great because you get to try a bunch of different things and design for a lot of different brands, but you lose the ability to really grow a product. Well, you never truly own it. And this is something that I feel like a lot of creatives and strategists go through, which um, I feel that we've we've learned to be very good about is not being too close to our designs or creations because we could make something that is great like we could design an entire website where all the different content types are perfectly attuned maximized for conversions you know optimized for user goals but the client at the end of the day is the word of god and they dictate essentially what that ends up looking like. Most of the time, clients will rely on us to guide them along what their web experience should look like. I mean, I've never really had a situation where an idea that we came up with was so outwardly rejected and revamped completely. It's usually like these little small tweaks uh, here and there. Uh, very rarely is it something major. But you know, for a lot of our designers, even myself, because part of what I do, in addition to the variety of things I do, is figure out what should exist on these different pages from a content perspective. And, you know, if a client disagrees with, you know, what should be higher than the other, like on a homepage, should testimonials be higher up on the page than, you know, UGC images? Uh, whatever my opinion is, and I can advise on that opinion, if the client feels very strongly about any aspect of that web experience and there's really no good, it's, if it's subject, I'll put this way, the more that it's subjective, the more of an, op an opinion is subjective, the less control you have over it, which is why in general, we've been focusing a lot more on data-driven decisions and kind of actual user, you know, user-based decisions where we're not just using our own opinions, we're basing it off of actual visual behavioral data so that when we go to clients, we can show or explain why we made a certain decision. And usually that's helped us, you know, not, I wouldn't say win, but that's helped us explain why we're right, even though that's not the point. But yeah, circling back to what I said in the beginning, essentially, yeah, you basically own Tracer to an extent. It's your thing. No website we create, aside from our own company website, is truly our own creation. Right. Having to having a reason and logic to back up any decision decision you make is always good. Not only to uh, explain why you made a decision, but to look back, uh, you know, in the past after you made a decision, or maybe like 
you didn't make a certain decision to figure out why you did or didn't do something um, after you're, you know, maybe redesigning the tool for the, the third time. Uh, it's just good to have that historical data. So how do you get outside your, your own head? Because, you know, how do you basically get out of a feedback loop where, you know, sure, you've, used, you've designed something, it's been, you know, uh, it's been updated, pushed live under the tool, and, you know, you think it's great. But how do you avoid that echo chamber of, you know, everyone at Tracer who's a lot more familiar with the tool? You know, there might be some dis disagreements there, uh, you know, internally. But, you know, how are you making sure that that tool is actually solving, you know, your customers' needs in a better way? So we do several things, right? So we're always listening to users and there's several different ways to do that. Uh, one is we have a research team that is proactively uh, asking users certain questions and testing prototypes that we build to make sure that whatever we are designing is uh, on track for what is at the core is solving what's at the core of the problem. Uh, another piece is we have a client success team and they are going to see a lot of different issues where maybe uh, users may or may not bring certain things up to them, but while they are going through the tool and explaining it to users for the first time, they could kind of get a sense of where there's confusion and where things just click and make sense. So without the user having to say anything directly to us, we can get a sense of what needs to be better already. Um, and then there's another piece of it where, and this is more for uh, products that are still younger, um, where we kind of know things that are not on par with where we want them to be, like irrelevant of user feedback to a point. Um, an example of that is we used to have or we, we still do have, uh, but it was just designed very differently, a reporting um, UI. And the UI was set up where everything was set to be a table. So you would have a list of reports in a table, you would have a list of your tabs in a table, and then you would have your the, the tables in that tab in a table. So everything was a table. Now, I, I definitely could have uh, confirmed, and I did confirm with users, um, that this was a problem, but without even having to do that, I knew that, you know, tabs should look like tabs, uh, tables should look like tables, user navigation between reports should look differently than, uh, than what it was. Uh, so I think it's very important to communicate with users and to confirm what you're doing is correct. I think it's also super important to talk to users because they could tell you something out of left field that you just weren't thinking at all. Um, so it, they kind of uh, reduce your blind spots. Yeah, and I feel with e-commerce, and that's, I'd say that's one of the nice things about general product design that I feel like with e-commerce, it's a little bit trickier because essentially when you take something like Tracer or Facebook or literally any kind of web-based application that isn't a shop site. 
the the purpose and the goal is so different, right? Like the intent of the user and what the user has to do and the user behavior will vary. Well, it'll obviously vary drastically. So the interface and the research and essentially mapping out that, you know, behavioral journey obviously looks something different. Because on an e-commerce site, it's the same thing every time. It's in some combination of this, it's homepage, shop or collection pages, product page, add to cart, go to checkout. And especially on Shopify, you know, it, that checkout experience is even more streamlined because you can't, you can't even touch that. I don't know how much you know about Shopify and how conscious you are when you are on a Shopify site, but the checkout flow is literally the same. And there are certain restrictions that will keep these Shopify experiences we create standard to a degree. Now, I mulled around with this for a long time when I first started here because essentially I had the issue of, okay, how, like, you know, where does UX actually come in to actually, you know, you know, where do you bring user experience into e-commerce? Because, because it's, in theory, very similar. And eventually I came to the conclusion is that e-commerce UX is more information-based than design-based. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So essentially, yes, a homepage, shop, and product page. These pages are all standard, but as far as what populates them, those, those are what you're mapping to, to the users. Because something like buttons or you know, like a CTA button, an add to car button, a, the navigation, those all look the same. A user's going to know what that is. A user's going to know what a hamburger button is, even if they don't know it's called a ham, you know, a hamburger button. Right. But where you're delivering that good user experience is making sure that these pages are filled with the types of content that is going to match what they're looking for. So for example, for ramen, and I brought this up, before to prep you and that ramen was going to be part of this conversation somehow you think of it this way in that the actual design of ramen all ramen is very similar it is a block of you know a block of dehydrated noodles right but how it varies in addition you know how it varies is really based on the information on the packaging based on what people are looking for i mean this is a really stupid example now that I think about it, but I think it still holds true. I could have probably picked a thousand better examples, but I always I always default to the worst ones, you know. Gotta keep I prepared uh, an analogy for this as well. So I think oh. it's really funny that you came up with ramen. <laughs> I'd like to hear it after after I go through this one. But but essentially if you think about it for this way, and sure, this might be talking more into packaging design, but I still think it holds true for e-commerce UX. And that for different flavors of ramen, they have different visuals and colors associated with it. And as well as different spice levels. Because for the ramen packaging, if it's red, well, that means it's generally spicier than if it was a cool color like blue, which means it's probably more mild. Same thing for like chicken and beef. Chicken on ramen packaging tends to be blue. Or I think it tends to be blue. Maybe it's yellow. I don't remember. But beef is usually like a darker color. It's usually never a cooler color. And I noticed this consistency across different types of ramens, not just for one company. And so in that same vein, and, and man, this is man, this is a really bad. I, I'm very tempted to cut this out, but I guess I'm going to commit uh, to it at this I'm point. I'm enjoying this. 
Oh, I'm glad someone is. I'm, <laughs> I'm glad everyone but anyone who's listening to this is enjoying this. But essentially, sure, on a product page, the information that populates a product page will vary based on the product category, uh, you know, who's buying it. I mean, take coffee, for example, something that I know a lot about and you know I know a lot about. On yes. the collection page, sure, a collection page shouldn't be anything more than a list of products with perhaps filters if, if it's useful for that. But there's a way to enhance that, and that's with the types of information that goes on that product listing. Something you can do, and something that I usually generally recommend when I look at coffee sites, is include tasting notes in the actual product listing, not just when they get to the product page. Because that way, when the user is looking at the types of coffee to get, they may not know what any... Number one, your coffee might, be, might have an f- interesting name, like an actual like branded name. So that tells you nothing about the actual coffee itself. Mm-hmm. Or you might not know enough about the regionality of coffee to know that a Yurgachev is going to have a particular taste. If you know coffee really well, you'll know the different types of coffee will taste a certain way. Most people won't know that. So to include just three tasting notes on the actual listing before they even get to the PDP, that helps guide them on which coffee to click on and explore. Because now they've, been, now they've actually had a chance to learn more about the product in a way that satisfies what they're looking for. And you can have more information too, like the types of roast. Like you could say dark roast, slash, and then put the tasting notes. I mean, there's a bunch of different information that you can put in the listing page, very small little tidbits of it. But that's a way of taking what's normally a very standardized page and enhancing that user experience and usability of it by providing the, the user with the types of information that they're heavily looking for. I should have just stuck with coffee. I shouldn't even have brought up ramen. That's my first mistake. No, 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 no. I think the, the ramen is hitting two things. So let's break this down. The, the first, which you already called out, is giving the user relevant information for them to make the proper decision. The second piece, which the coffee example doesn't do as much as the ramen, is you want to... You don't want to make the user think, or you want to minimize how much they need to think. You want things to be really obvious, but at the same time, you don't want things to be uh, too noisy, right? So you could just scan the grocery shelves, and you know which ramen to grab because you you saw the color. You didn't need to read anything. The, the user doesn't have to really think at all, right? But then there's uh, the other piece where you don't want to have, let's say, um, you had four colors on every ramen box and uh, in each of the corners, and each color represented something different. At that point, um, that would, even though you're making things like really obvious in a way, you are adding too much confusion. So you want to you want to pick the piece of information that is really important and make that piece of information very obvious to the user, or as obvious as you can. And obviously that varies depending on the medium and product that you're dealing with. Sure, and actually, yeah, and it's, see, th- this, is, this is why I like talking to you. This is, I think this is, this is why we've, um, is this the third podcast we've recorded together or is this the second? I can't remember. This is uh, the second, but the, yeah. maybe we'll do a third one after this. Maybe. <laughs> but yeah, getting back to it, and I think understanding the patterns is important also from a competitive, competitive perspective. 
because you have to think about what people generally associate with and i'm going to default to i'm going to i'm going to use soda in this example i'm going to use an entirely different category um but also a beverage for a lot of like off-brand uh beverages you know like the store brand cola is still going to have a red package lemon lime is still going to have a green package and even like the Dr. Pepper clones are going to be like Mr. Pib or like Dr. Bob, which is a real soda. Um, because, you know, people associate it with that. You know, if you you don't always have to be different in a way. I mean, I guess if you're a commodity item or if you're trying to be a store brand version. Yeah, I kind of get that. But there's a ton of other examples where people will design their packaging around a visual cue that people recognize. Because, you know, that'll immediately recall that thing up. I mean, I'm trying to think of in my head like the best, ex- another great example for it, but I don't know. I'm not the best with analogy. I think Mr. Pib is a great example because not only does it make it easier to find and connect the two products together, but it also makes it familiar. So you feel if, let's say, you, you only dealt with Dr. Pepper, you'll be more comfortable switching over because it's not as big of a jump. You'll you'll trust Bob a little bit more, right? Um. So, do you want to hear my my uh, analogy? I, I would love I would love to hear your analogy and take this off me for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> um. So this analogy is talking about uh slightly slightly different stuff, but there's still uh similar strings. So I obviously I knew I was coming on this podcast, so I was th- thinking a bit of like. How do I think about e-com design compared to product design? And I, it's a lot about like, not what does the user want to do, but what do we want to get the user to do? So in e-commerce, like you said, it's all about getting them to check out. And arguably, it's, it's, designed like a maze but a maze that you want to be like the easiest maze possible right you want to get them from the start to the end really quickly have minimal roadblocks and really the only reason why you need to put those roadblocks in is the walls in the maze it is going to be like the different products that you're selling um the all the different information you want the user to know uh but nonetheless it's always going to be a maze Sure. With product design, now it depends on what the product is, but let's go with um, social networks because I think it's very interesting, especially uh, in these last few years. They're making a lot of their money through advertising revenue. So they are also designing a maze, but a maze that you want to get, that they want you to get stuck in. And that's uh, YouTube. Uh, starting to do the autoplay functionality after you're done watching a video, just jumps into the next one. And that's Instagram having their explore page. They just want to lock you into their product and not really give you a destination. And I think those are just very interesting ideologies of like, we're used to having, okay, this is the user flow. This is the start and end. But for a lot of these products, we're seeing here's the start and then we're not 
we're not going to, there is no end. There is no destination. Just let them enjoy the product for as long as possible. That's actually a really good point that I, I never really thought of. Yeah, you're, you, I don't know, yeah, I'm, I'm like a shop site. You're trying to like get them in and out. Uh, I always tell clients about how bounce rate isn't always such a negative thing when it's high because if conversions are high, but bounce rates are also high, but traffic is relatively stable, that means that the user was able to just check out faster or, fa- or find what they need a lot faster. While with a lot of these social networks or tools, I mean, bounce rates work a little bit differently because if you're Facebook, bounce rate probably doesn't mean anything to you because people are probably hopping in and out all the time. But unlike something like Facebook, where they probably only care about total use and not total use per session, although that still is valuable. For e-commerce, it's entirely, it's entirely use per, per session. You know, we don't, we take it as a bad thing if someone goes to your website, you know, your shop site, and they're coming back and forth, you know, periodically, and they're not making some kind of converting action. Because on social media, there, there really is no main conversion. I mean, there is for the social media network, which is clicking on ads, which is technically a conversion for both the company and the social media app. But still, the way they view their metrics is a lot different. I know it's a little bit different than... I know metrics is a very different thing to design, but the metrics do inform the design. And it's very cyclical in that way because essentially, and something that we don't get to do enough, which I wish we did, and I have something I really want to start doing a lot more of is, is, you know, I feel like everyone, when you're designing an experience for the first time, I guess more so for something like Tracer, you don't know if it's a good tool yet until someone actually uses it and tells you, oh, this is great. Or if someone tells you, oh, this is wrong or this is bad, so you can make it a better tool. I mean, inherently, like Dustin, you, you've done this a long time. And so you know, you inherently will have some idea that something will work very well because you even explained before how you could see that, oh, you know, a tab should look like a tab. At the same time, if, unless users actually use it, you never really know if something you built was actually well-made or not. So I think there are two things to that. The first is, you're, you're exactly right. I can never make the call that uh, a design is good or not. My boss can't make the call if a design is good or not. It's always going to be up to the user. The other piece of that, which goes against that a bit, is design is a very interesting medium because you are guaranteed to never have the right answer. There's always room for improvement. There's always room for it to be better. There's always new trends happening. There, it's not like, it, and even with um, programming, I mean, it's always the case, but there are other, I guess, fields where once you solve the problem, it's, it's solved, right? Like one plus one equals two. You can't make it more efficient than that. Design can never be that clear cut. It's always gray. And we're always trying, we're obviously, we're str- always striving 
to get the the best design. But even if users love it, there's always going to be room for improvement. That's that's true. I think it was um I might be remembering this wrong. I I don't remember who came up with it, but I have a my my gut is telling me Aristotle, but I remember the concept of perfection was something that we could not humanly achieve, but it would be something that we were always actively striving for but could never truly fully master. And I feel design is the same way in how you just described it where it's we're trying to solve an unsolvable problem. We get closer and closer and closer, but we never truly solve it because it it can't be solved. I mean, you could always make something better. Nothing is ever truly perfect. Right. And that's the fun part. And going back to what we were first talking about of it, as opposed to being in an agency designing for a product, it's all about doing those fine-tuned tweaks. It's a very different mindset than uh, if you're working in an agency and you're just touching something for a few months and then you're handing it off to the client. Right. And I think that's something that we've learned that's been really helpful for that is how essentially, because, you know, a lot of the stuff that I've done, be quite honestly, has been influenced by a lot of your design philosophies just because you're so good at it. And, <laughs> and one of the things that we've been striving to do with that is to say with clients after we do, you know, a whole full build is saying, hey, you know, the site's done, it's complete, but there's always ways that it can get better. And we try doing this by offering these kind of growth optimization services where we are then constantly A-B testing, um, you know, various elements of the site to try to make sure that we are enhancing it as much as possible. We could be testing pop-ups like a like an email pop-up or just a, a random pop-up in general with some kind of call to action to a specific product page. Uh, it could be copy A-B testing where we're essentially figuring out, okay, you know, what bits of information are more likely to convert? I mean, because you can, you can basically optimize messaging. You can optimize actual product design or, you know, what core benefits are highlighted the most. And even for creative, I mean... You know, it's something simple like a banner, simply changing up the visuals of a banner and maybe tweaking a little bit of the messaging of it. You know, you can uh, it can go a long way. I mean, similar with what you guys do or more more specifically similar to what your app services is for paid media. When clients are in paid media, what we use is something called Shogun, which is these very easy to edit and customize landing pages. And essentially what that allows us to do is quickly swap out components of custom landing pages we build for paid media because landing pages are five times more likely to convert than just directing a user to like a standard page. Mm -hmm. So by doing that, that's in some way our opportunity to take a page from general product design by off by adding value to our clients by essentially further optimizing the website that we built for them. And we're not necessarily admitting that we built it wrong because we believe that we built it towards the user goal, but we're openly admitting that there's always ways to make it better. And so that's something I think e-commerce design can learn from general product design is don't just stop when the website's built. You should continue to test and grow aspects of your web experience so that you can make sure you're delivering a, you know, an optimized user and customer experience overall. Yep, that's a great point. And I think it just goes to like, not just um, user experience, but the overall experience of how 
um, your clients are working with uh, the the tool or site or whatever it is, right? So like even with Tracer, obviously I'm focused mostly on Tracer the product, but we're also working on designs for our public marketing site to let other people know what Tracer is and to get uh, new users that way. And also uh, email communication with our own users. How are those designed? We want everything to... uh, feel connected and for there to be one unified brand. Do you feel that's a strength that you guys have? Because essentially you guys are made up of more designers and developers than you are uh, like business or business people or strategists, right? Mm -hmm. Do you feel that that makes you guys stronger? Because essentially the, and you can be very honest about this because I myself uh, have my own beliefs on these things and that, for the most part, all right, number one, sales is a lot harder than it looks. And that I'm very openly honest about. Like, I'm sure you probably feel the same way, correct? Yeah, I mean, well, I am very much an introvert. So the idea of talking to other people is terrifying. Right. That's- but in the sense of like marketing, you know, you have, there's tons of companies with marketing managers who can't do anything and i don't mean that in a derogatory way and i don't mean that for every marketing manager but you can have someone who can come up with an idea but doesn't aren't able to execute it themselves while perhaps you guys have people on your team who can come up with these creative ideas for you know email outreach or marketing yourselves and you have the actual tools to internally deliver on those things because you guys have that technical skill set Yeah, I mean, we have enough of a skill set that we can definitely get by without uh, full-time marketers uh, where like the design team can come up with the creative and then depending on what medium we're dealing with, either we could just build something ourselves or we could have our development team build something. So we're pretty self-sufficient, but just like we were we're just talking about there's always room for improvement always room to get better and i'm sure if we hired a professional marketer um our output would be very different so i wanted to close this this episode by asking you a question as i have been doing throughout this whole thing but I want to talk about the idea of branded user experience because that's something that i've been recently getting into a lot And I wanted to get your thought is, is it possible to have a user experience or interface that is so branded that others will think you're a copycat for using it? Uh, What do you give, give me a little bit more to that. What do you mean? So, okay. You know how like you have like a signature uh, trademark or logo where if someone copied that logo, uh, or someone copied that like business model, you would think you were just copying them. I mean, in the same way with like Uber and Lyft or C- or like Uber Eats and Grubhub, how in a way you kind of, a lot of people openly admit or openly understand that hey, it's just like a copy of one or the other, but there's regional differences between the two. I mean, in terms of actual design in like, let's say uh, web design, you know, visual design, Something that is so branded and so iconic to that brand that if you're using a tool that has that same kind of interface, 
or you know visual uh that's that same visual interface or has a very similar experience pathway is there anything that you can think of that is so iconic to a particular brand that you think if you were to try to adapt it people would be like oh you're just copying what that company did for their app or their website got it so a very core piece of uh ux design is designing with patterns that the user is uh used to so they so they don't have to use your tool before, but they could kind of pick it up fairly quickly and things are obvious to them. So a lot of, um, a lot, majority of software, I would say, is, is very much like that. Now, when there are, I would say, bigger players that are able to go against the norm because they have a strong user base, um, that can create these alternative patterns. And I think a prime example of that would be Snapchat, um, specifically their app, because I don't think they have a website. Uh, they but do, it, but it, they do, but it's not like it, it's not it's not a web based version of their app. It's like their company website. I got it. So their app has very different UX than you would uh, typically see where you have uh, you could you have your main page, which is the camera, right? And then you could swipe left and it does one thing. You swipe right, it does another thing, up, down, zoom in, zoom out. And it's really, it's arguably a terrible user experience because you don't know what anything does <laughs> off <laughs> the bat. And it's designed that way purposefully, right? They're, they're, I think I read a while ago, their whole thing is they kind of want the user experience to be a learning experience where it takes some time to, to know what you're doing to kind of keep um, people who are less technically inclined out of their platform. So it doesn't become like a Facebook uh, or even an uh, Instagram starting to now where you have like your crazy uncle uh, sending you snaps, right? Um, so I think it's a very, very unique UX. And if anyone copied that, they'd be like, oh, this is just like Snapchat. Cut to Instagram and Facebook adding stories to their platforms. It, it definitely has the Snapchat DNA in there, right? It's a lot of uh, swiping. And the swiping makes sense. The tapping... The tapping makes less, less sense to me. But that is a direct pull of Snapchat UX, but just a piece of it, right? That's, that's true. And you want to know something funny about the stories is that at first, when Instagram took it, uh, mm -hmm. I, I'm going to take Facebook off of this because I, I, tr I personally and truly believe Facebook stories are dumb. I believe YouTube stories are dumb. dumb and I believe Twitter stories are dumb. But with Instagram... Twitter. Twitter has stories, or at least they will, um, which is dumb. Uh, yeah. But when Instagram had stories, I think Instagram might have been the first beyond Snapchat to have stories. And yeah. people were like, oh, it's ruining the app. It's copying uh, Snapchat. It's, it's awful. But you know what? 
you know what it did? And I was fascinated by this. It fundamentally changed the user goals and the user intentions of that app because suddenly you had a space where you could just post anything like any types of content regardless of the quality because when you think of in terms of the hierarchy of which content belongs where your posts are essentially sacred like the stuff that actually gets posted on to your instagram feed and account that's like in normally that's like the cream of the crop best edited that's you know your best photos your best designs you know basically uh the best versions of yourself or whatever your account is about but your stories your stories could really be you talking to people or if you're a brand talking to your audience by just picking up a phone and just hitting record and talking and honestly some of that content on there is so much more either valuable or entertaining than looking at the actual curated content. And I feel like it's made Instagram a lot better because it's brought almost life to it. Like, you know, when you're, I don't know if you've ever done this, but when I'm working in my room, I like to have my TV on in the background as background noise to make it seem less quiet or to Mm -hmm. make it seem like there's more around than just myself. And I feel like the Instagram stories do it. I feel like it makes Instagram less lonely. And that might just be me, but I feel like it fundamentally changed the app for the better. Instagram actually benefited from the stories. And, you know, I, I never had any issue with, with it, even though people at one point did and they got over it. But for Facebook, that's, that's dumb because people aren't hanging out on Facebook anymore. I mean, people are hanging out on Twitter, but I feel like the tweets themselves are already so stream of consciousness and their quality varies. Like there's no such thing as a quality tweet in terms of like what makes a tweet more highly curated than the other hmm that you haven't been on my twitter i haven't been on your twitter i mean you can plug it right here if you want (laughs) uh no thanks it's all (laughs) topics that uh no one laughs at i i called your bluff um dustin alper but Uh, essentially yeah i i say that's one of the only examples i can think of off the top of my head i mean if I had to really think honestly, I'd say there's probably a tons of tons of stuff that the that Apple did with both MacBook with their MacBooks and you know their iMacs and their iOSs in terms of how those systems work. I mean, I mean for the most part, there was a long time where pretty much any smartphone that behaved like Apple that wasn't Apple was called like an Apple clone, and eventually Android built an identity of their own whatever that identity is is still to this day i have no idea but i feel like even in terms of the concepts of like app design and the more rounded more material designs of things i mean they all build off each other because google has material design right but then apple started it apple started adapt adapting material design and sure some people in the design community knew that it was based on material design, but the average person doesn't know what material design is. But the average person does know what Instagram and Snapchat stories are. So I think that's actually a perfect example to this. Right. Um, it's also interesting, like, it, you're, never, you're never coming up with anything new when you're designing. You're always building off what's there. And when you have something that's trend setting, 
like uh, Snapchat stories, even if Instagram wanted to build a, a similar type of functionality, it's very difficult to break off from their fingerprint because it's just so unique to what el- to uh, anything else that's on the market. No, of course. And for like, especially for like an e-commerce site, your goal is to not be different in your level, not level design, in your in your bit, essentially like page design, like you want there to be some sense of consistency rather than, you know, do things different for different sake. I mean, there's this one website that I went on uh, and they actually have their navigation stickied to the bottom of the page like it was an app. But it was actually a worse user experience because here's the difference on an app. When you click on different tabs at in the you know bottom menu, they essentially take you to different pages, uh, more or less. While for this website, it opened up the menu like it would on an e-commerce site. And it was actually a much more cumbersome thing to use. The, the cart was at the bottom sticky. It was, just, it was just bad. Not only did it go against user expectations, but even when I did notice it, because I actually at first thought the site was broken and refreshed it a few times, it was harder to use. I mean, if you go on if you go on Amazon's app, right? Amazon's app, they still have the hamburger menu with the slide out me- with the you know with the slide out menu like on an e-commerce website. Even though it's an app, they didn't change that interface because honestly, uh, again, it's it all relates to it's an e-commerce experience should be streamlined. Product design, general product design, like for Tracer or Facebook, those have to be specifically curated based on what the tool is meant to be used for. But an e-commerce site, it's not meant to be, it's not a tool. It's not meant to be used. A user is supposed to go to it and then buy something and then leave. It's, it's not delivering any inherent value other than to be a channel of which a person can buy what they want. They're not, sure, there might be a blog on there, but that's really not, I've, there are very few e-commerce websites where the blog is more popular than the actual core pages. You know what um, is probably, at least off the top of my head, the most unique e-commerce site um, that is uh, very popular and people don't even, I mean, people will definitely buy things off of it, but a lot of people just go to look at the products is apple.com right like their whole thing is we're going to have these major pages where you're scrolling for days explaining to you our products that they're just like obviously very romantic about them um and like yes there is a buy button uh but it does not feel like an e-commerce site and actually a I don't know when they did this. It was a few years ago. They used to have product pages. So if you want to learn about, keep in mind this a few years ago. So if you want to learn about uh, the iPod, the iBook, uh, the iMac, you would go to those pages. And then they had a separate shop. There were two totally separate things. And then eventually a couple years ago, they merged the two where, oh yeah, you're looking at this product. You probably want to buy it. Here's, here's the link to do that. Um, but they still kept that product uh, focus, not the we're trying to sell you something. You know, that's that's very that's very true. It's amazing. We have we have obviously mentioned Apple through this, but never in that way. I mean, take a look at this way. The product pages themselves and the product pages aren't 
really even product pages. I mean, they're essentially just, you know, uh, the next step. Like, I feel like more people spend time in the collection page for these things because they're essentially each product has its own collection page dedicated to it. It's its own experience. And I actually think that Apple probably is a great example of branded design. Any other company were to have this same kind of UX, people would say, oh, it's like Apple where they have the whole product slider and it's and each product has its own dedicated section. And the product page is usually very minimal. I mean, the only thing that you can look at is options and selecting options. You don't get any other information because at that point you won't need any other information. Not that you need information. I feel like that's the interesting thing about Apple, at least at this point. I feel like their product pages or whatever you want to call them, I feel like they're more for them than they are for the user. Because I feel like this doesn't like none of Apple's pages really offer the user anything. It's a lot of like marketing fluff that looks really nice. I feel like it's meant for the I feel like it's meant for Apple's brand, not for the user. But Apple can do that because they're Apple. Yeah, it is 100% for the brand. You don't have to read a single word. Again, it's just like being in the supermarket with the ramen. You are just glancing at these beautifully designed pages. And you're like, oh, yeah, this is fancy. I'm going to buy the new iPhone, the new $1,000 iPhone. Yeah, because it's because ultimately they have to give that impression. Like if you were to just go to if you were to click on iPhone, I feel like at this point they could do that. They're just not going to. You could click on iPhone and it could show you the iPhone, a page with just the iPhone, a picture of the iPhone, and then a buy button. And that would really be all you do need. But that goes against Apple's core ethos of, you know, this very enhanced cutting edge. And it's a model that I feel like everyone, not everyone, but a lot of companies try to copy that I feel like you can't. Like you should, you know, there are no original ideas, as you said, but I feel like if you try to blindly copy something and I'll segue this into saying that this is actually a problem that we do run into with clients sometimes that clients will see a website and it's for a product that is not in their category. And they'll be like, I love how this feels. I love this experience. I want this experience for my brand. But if you're going to apple.com and you love that experience and you're selling shoes, it doesn't perfectly translate the 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 design and the feeling that a website gives off has to make sense for the product category. I mean, if you're selling shoes, there's not enough information that you can cram onto a visual slider that you could talk about shoes. Maybe maybe you can. Maybe there's maybe something like I don't know pasta or any other product. There's tons of product. There's tons of product categories you can't say enough about. So it doesn't I work. Mean- you, it, you're you're exactly right. It's it's that these these uh, devices have a ton of different specs. Now, with that said, and users don't the typical user doesn't care too much about the specs. They don't even know what they mean, right? Yeah. But but again, it's about the brand. So if you're a shoe company and you want to list all of your specs because there's more than we both realize, right? Like if you want to talk about the material of the laces. Like the 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 technology of um, underneath the, the sole of the shoe, you could totally stretch those details, but it's going to come off as uh, silly. Where Apple has convinced everyone that not only is it not silly, but you care about this. 
Right. I mean, like the A15 bionic chips, like even I don't know what that means. All I know is A15 or A13. Hey, that's higher than last year's A12. It must be better. I don't care how many teraflops or how many, how many, how much blue sapphire goes into the the helicopter resistant camera lenses. But hey, it's it's the best phone out there. I mean, yeah, if you have a big enough brand, and I guess maybe this is where we can sort of end this discussion. Truly, as much as I would like to keep talking forever, uh, because I feel like we could. But I I feel like if you have a big enough brand, you can get away with certain design best practices not that you should and if for all intents and purposes the ultimate goal of anyone who's in user experience or design should ultimately strive to make a much better experience for the end user at the end of the day but if you're a big enough brand like apple and we've had some clients like this where it's falls under a similar vein where honestly people don't care if the experience isn't perfectly optimized because not only do they love the brand enough so they'll like again with the maze they'll run straight through the maze to get what they want they won't even go through the maze because they don't care about it they just care about the brand and that maze is gone for them even if it's even if it's only in their own head because ultimately they want what they want and no amount of poorly placed buttons is going to stop them from doing that but I feel like you can't get sloppy. There does come a point where if you step away too much, yeah, eventually people are going to notice that something is bad and they're going to move towards something that's better. It's all subconscious, right? Like people aren't always aware when a design is bad, but there's just something inherently that when we're browsing something that causes frustration that we just leave because we're like, oh, uh, like I can't do this right now or I'll do this when I get home and then they go home and they forget and you've lost that sale not because there's someone better but because your experience frustrated someone enough at that at that right point in time to when they were interested in buying uh, they right. couldn't do it right what I will say is people are more inclined to know when a design is bad than when it's good because good design shouldn't you shouldn't see it you shouldn't feel it it just kind of is agreed all right well dustin thank you so much this was great talking to you is always a treat and i'm finally glad i got you on here i know we've been talking about this for a little bit but finally glad to finally cement it yeah thank you for having me glad to be a part of it all right thank you